as we continue the Gospel of Wholeness, part three. Come on, come on. Good morning. Well, as Bill said, we are not quite in the middle. We're approaching the middle of a, a, a series that we're calling the Gospel of Wholeness. And uh, we've had two prior weeks. I want to do a, just a quick review for those of you who, who may not have been here for the last two weeks and, and to sort of, sort of catch us up so we, we know where we're, we're headed and why we're doing this, this series. But let me go ahead and just pray briefly and ask God to, to be with us today. Father, I, I just ask that you would deposit in our hearts and our minds truth that would, would make a difference, make a difference in our uh, our walk with you, make a difference in our becoming more and more like you. Jesus, we, we invite you to have your way with us individually, as families, as a, as a church family. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the, the gospel of wholeness, as you remember, is just simply an explanation of how we grow, how we are changed, to become more like Jesus. Okay, we, we talked the first week about how I think it's fair to say that most of the church, the evangelical church in America, is fairly familiar and comfortable in explaining to another person how to get saved, how to come into a, an initial relationship with Christ. But where I feel like we are less uh, equipped is in explaining to an individual how they are to grow in their relationship with Christ. Somebody can come to us and say, I, I want to know Jesus, we would explain it well. If someone came to us and said, here are some areas of my life that are, are just broken, that aren't working, I, I, I feel like most of the church would be as likely to send that individual to an expert rather than feeling equipped from God's word to explain this is what the scriptures say as to this process of becoming like Jesus. It's the biblical word that's used is the, the process of, of sanctification. So we define the gospel of wholeness as a practical theology of sanctification. Practical in that it's, it's something that we can use in everyday life. Theology in that it's about God, our relationship with him, his relationship with us, and it's about sanctification, this lifelong process of being changed, being transformed, continually being worked on by God from the inside out so we can be more like him. Uh, at the table in the back, hopefully you, you uh, have been coming for, for each week because each week builds on the prior week. But on the table in the back, I have these cards. And the cards uh, list eight verses, which are just simply a basic, simple uh, explanation from the scriptures directly of this process of how God changes us. There's nothing magical about these verses. I could have used other verses, but I didn't. These verses simply are a way that you can understand and have clear to you so that you're able to then share clearly with someone else how Jesus gets hold of us, how Jesus changes us. So I encourage you, if you didn't already grab a couple of these cards, get one. It'll help you allow the, the, the gospel of wholeness, if you will, to become clear to you. So there are eight verses that we're going over. Last week, we, we looked at the first two, the foundation of this gospel of wholeness, as I'm calling it. Uh, and the gospel of wholeness isn't a separate gospel. It's just part and parcel of the, the gospel of Christ. Jesus wants us to come into a relationship with him. Jesus wants us to be transformed by him. It's we who have separated salvation from sanctification in the heart of God, in the scriptural understanding. There is no separation. There ought to be no separation between how we come to Christ and how we grow in Christ. But the first two verses you remember, hopefully, uh, first verse was in Genesis chapter 3. And it defined what the core issue was. In Genesis chapter 3, we read uh, in verses 6 through 13, we read about the fall. 
the fall of Adam and Eve, the fall that created all the problems in this, in this world. And what we, what we see is that when Adam and Eve fell, when sin came into this world, it fractured relationships in, in three directions. It fractured our relationship with God and, and disturbed that and, and broke that. It, sin coming into the world broke our ability to have right and healthy relationship with others. And we see in Genesis 3 also how when sin entered the world, it also fractured our relationship with ourselves. And by that I mean our ability to come to understand who we are, why we are, from where uh, our, our peace comes, where our hope comes, where our joy comes, where our security comes, that was fractured. So it, it broke things Godward, otherward, and inward. The, the key concept, each verse has a key concept to help us understand it. The key concept of Genesis 3 and of this first verse of the gospel of wholeness is, do you remember? Sin is the common problem, or the common problem is sin. In other words, when somebody gives me a call and says, Danny, I'd like to get together with you and talk with you, even before they walk into the door of my office, I have a pretty good idea that we're going to be talking about one of three things. We're going to be talking about either sins that have been committed against them, offenses that are still hanging them up. We're going to be talking about their own sin or sinful responses to sins committed against them. Or we're going to be talking about where I get my shirts. Those are the three most common things I talk to people about. Then the second verse in the Gospel of Holiness is Jeremiah 2.13. And Jeremiah 2.13 just elaborates on this topic of, of sin. And in Jeremiah, God speaks through his prophet and he says, Really, my people have committed two sins. The first sin, the, I can summarize all sin, the first summary of, of the sin that God's people have committed is that we have abandoned him. We've rejected him. We've, we've turned from him, who, from God, who is our stream, our, our, our spring of living water. In other words, God says, I'm the one that gives life. I'm the one that gives identity and purpose and hope and peace. I'm the one, God says, who gives security, who gives a sense of, of, of well-being. He is the source of life. But God says, my people have not only rejected me, they've abandoned me, they, they've turned away from me, but they've begun to dig these cisterns, these wells, trying to find life in this world, trying to find something in this world that will give them peace or joy or identity or purpose or hope. You know, some people turn to material things or money. Some people turn to relationships and try to find life from another person. Some people turn to uh, career and, and trying to find their identity in their career. Some people look to their bank account as their security. Some people will turn to most anything that this world provides in order to get what only God can give. We, the, the key concept to this second verse, to Jeremiah 2.13, is empty wells. That these wells, these cisterns that we're digging, trying to find life, are empty. They're broken, Jeremiah says. They cannot provide what only God can give. They are just counterfeit ways of trying to get what only God can give. And no matter how deep or how many we dig, we will not find life as God wants to provide it. They may not be bad things in and of themselves, education, relationships, those aren't bad things, but if we try to find life from it, identity and purpose and hope, that's where the problem arises. So the first verse is Jeremiah 2, 2 Jeremiah 3, 6 through 13, and in the first verse, it, sin is the common problem. Second verse elaborates on it, and it talks about the 
fact that we've abandoned God and are trying to find life through these sins of choice. We all have them. We're trying to find life through our particular empty well that cannot provide life. Now we're all caught up. That's the last sermon that you just heard in five minutes or so. Third verse we're going to go over. This third verse sort of explains why do we even have to talk about sin? You know, the you know, person comes to us and says, all you Christians do is talk about sin, sin, sin. It's just such a bummer of a topic. You need to get with it. You need to get more creative in this 21st century. Sin is just a downer. Well, there's a reason why we have to deal with this, this common problem of sin. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, it says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from their flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life or abundant life. There's a reason why we deal with sin. It's not because we like to feel guilty or cause other people to feel guilty. It's not because we want to just bring heaviness into every conversation. We talk about sin because the scriptures make it clear. This isn't something that we make up. The scriptures make it clear. Jesus made it clear that sin causes bad, bad fruit. I mean, I recognize that in my life when I sin, when I'm walking contrary to how I was designed. It causes difficulty and bad fruit in my life. And also, it's not just when I sin, but when I sin against somebody else. I'm sowing seeds in their life that will bear bad fruit. If I was to raise my son and, and constantly t tell him, you're worthless, you're hopeless, you're, you're going to amount to nothing... I'd be sowing seeds in his life that later on are going to bear bad fruit. Not only in my life as the one who says that, but it'll bear bad fruit in his life. So we need to learn how to biblically deal with sin so we can uproot the bad fruit. So we can uproot the, the seeds that have been planted in us that, that do bear bad fruit. So we, we address this root issue of sin because sin in our lives always results in bad fruit. The key concept to this, this, uh, this second verse is sowing and reaping. Okay? Sowing and reaping. Our sins, sins committed against us, our sinful reactions to sin bear bad fruit. And, and just even the sin that entered the world through Adam and Eve bear bad fruit. Death, we, we suffer loss, and it affects us. So the gospel of holiness is simply what the scriptures say as to how we deal with this common problem, which is sin. So, why do we have to deal with sin? Can't we, can't we just you know, move on and ignore it? Not if we want to be biblical. Okay? We want to be a biblical people. And for that reason, the scriptures say that it bears bad fruit unless we deal with sin biblically. So we want to be a biblical people. It's not because uh, we, we just like to bring heavies into conversation or look in, into our lives in ways that drag us down, it's because there's good news. The reason why the gospel is good news is because there is an answer of how we deal with this common problem of sin. It's good news that we can uproot the, the bad fruit that results. We need to remember that there is no statute of limitation on sin. This verse... Galatians 6, 7, and 8 didn't say, whatever is sown out of the flesh will reap corruption unless it happened more than seven years ago. Then it's past. It doesn't say, whatever is sown out of the flesh will reap destruction in your life unless it happened when you were a kid. It doesn't say, whatever is sown out of the flesh will reap destruction and difficulties and bad fruit, unless it happened before you were a Christian. It says, whatever is sown out of the flesh 
will reap destruction. And that's why we, we, we need to learn and understand the good news of the gospel because the gospel explains not just how we deal with sin in an eternal sense, how we get to go and be with Christ for eternity in heaven, but it speaks to how we deal with sin in this life so we can, rather than digging our empty wells and trying to fix ourselves and, and find what we need from this world, we can find what we need in a restored relationship with Christ. You with me so far? There's no statute of limitation on sin. So we need to, to deal with this common problem. Now, let me ask you this. One of the things that happens, and I, I skipped this point, but I'll make it now. One of the things that happens regularly in our lives for a variety of reasons is when we see the bad fruit, when we experience the brokenness, whether it's our own brokenness, brokenness of those who've, who've offended us or sinned against us in the past, because we don't know how to deal with sin biblically, what we often do is we just sweep it under the carpet. Maybe we were, were abused as a child. We were sinned against by childhood friends in the, the, the educational system. Maybe we were sinned against by parents or, or whatever. Well, as a child, we may not know. It's, we can't say, well, I'm being sinned against. We think we deserved it. It just gets swept under the carpet. In, in, in relationships in school, in, in, in marriage, we, we, we are offended. We, can get, we will get sinned against because we live in a fallen world. We end up, if we don't know how to deal with it, we sweep it under the carpet. And before long, we have bumps in the carpet. And we wonder why we continually trip through life and, and stumble around. Well, it's because we oftentimes haven't dealt with the, 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 the bad fruit that is, is springing forth. We don't know how to deal with, with the issues of, of hurt and, and the, the anger and the reactions that we see inside of us. Again, the gospel of wholeness is just the biblical explanation of how we can deal with it so it doesn't just get swept under the carpet, so it's not just something that's going to bear bad fruit where we see reactions for the rest of our life. Now, how do we know if we have swept things under the carpet. Actually, it's pretty easy. Let me, let me share a story. My, my wife loves fishing. I'm not a big fisherman. My wife loves fishing. And, and when she fishes, fishes, she catches things. When I fish, I never catch anything, which is probably the explanation why I don't enjoy it. So, but what I've learned in going fishing with Penny is that that when there's a, this is simple, right? When the pole bends, when the fishing rod bends, you can be pretty well assured, if it's me that I've hooked a log, if it's Penny that she's hooked a fish under the surface. So when there's a bend in the fishing pole, you've hooked something under the surf surface. When we see in our lives a bend in our emotions, a reaction in our emotions, it often is a good, good indication that you've hooked something under the surface. When, when you're, most of us have been in situations like this, where someone says something, someone does something, and all of a sudden you, you feel this, this reaction. You know, perhaps your boss says, you know, I, I, I want you to rewrite that report or I want you to, to do this over. It's not what I was looking for. And all of a sudden you're feeling tremendously angry or you're feeling tremendously, you know, depressed and you're up in the middle of the night just thinking about it. You can't shake it free. And you know in your reaction you're, you're overreacting. Maybe if you're married, there are times when you're married when, when your spouse may say something or your child says something and you realize there's this surge of emotion that responds. And in your mind, you think to yourself, I, I know I'm overreacting. Now, you don't say it out loud and you don't admit it, but you know you're overreacting to the situation. Why is that? It's because something has been hooked under the surface. 
something that we didn't deal with from the past that is getting hooked. That's one good way of knowing that there is fruit that is being produced that is able to and needs to be dealt with in a biblical fashion. Uh, It's what I would call emotional reflexes. You know, if I sat on a chair and crossed my legs and someone tapped me under my knee, what, what happens? My foot pops up. Now, why is that? No one touched my foot. Why does my foot pop up when they hit me beneath the knee? Because there's a nerve connecting, apparently, my foot and that knee. Same thing. We see in our lives times when we, we react. We might be watching a Hallmark commercial about, you know, loss or about coming together with, you know, and finding someone who cares about you. And we're just sitting there weeping and crying. Now, if you're a man, you don't let anyone see. You know, you just sort of wiping and say, oh, I've got something in my eye. And, but you know it taps something. It hooks something. These are all indications that there are things that by God's grace, he's provided a way to deal with that we have probably just swept under the carpet. You follow me so far? Thank you. Count on Giles. I, I know in my life, I grew up, and I've shared this before, I grew up in a family that was, you know, it was together. I mean, we lived under the same roof. My parents never, never separated or divorced. I, you know, I had two older brothers. But it was the most disconnected family under one roof you could imagine. We just didn't communicate. We didn't talk uh, about anything that had meaning. You know, I, we would never think of asking each other or my parents wouldn't be asking us oh so how is school today what's going on in your life what are you thinking about what are you feeling lately it just didn't happen so I grew up with this expectation do not let those things out because no one really cares anyway and it's something that I've I've had to to address because that hasn't borne great fruit in my life so it's something that I've had to learn. How do I deal with that sense of, of aloneness even around other people so I don't walk through life constantly providing my own security by zipping it up, by not sharing anything of myself? How do I not become my own protector but learn how to allow God to be my protector so I don't just dig an empty well of constantly only talking about other people, but never revealing anything about myself. Okay, you follow me? It, it doesn't sound like there's anything sinful about that. You might say, well, that's just being prudent and wise. But what I'm doing inadvertently is trying to get from my own abilities and techniques what only God can truly provide. That's what the gospel of wholeness is, is addressing. So, as we continue along, Galatians 6, 7, and 8, what, uh, what does it say? What's the key concept? Sowing and reaping. What we sow to the flesh will reap corruption. We just need to learn how to deal with it biblically. The next verse is Colossians 2, 6. Colossians 2, 6 sort of... Uh, Well, what it says is, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to to live your lives in him. Another translation says, As you receive Christ, so walk with him. You can paraphrase it. As you came to Christ, that's how you move on with Christ. As you got saved, that's how you get sanctified. Okay? What, what Paul is saying in Colossians 2.6 is the same mechanism, the same manner in which we come into a relationship with Christ is how we grow in our relationship with Christ. So what we're doing is having defined the common problem, which is sin. Now we are turning the corner, if you will, to the solution. Okay, the key concept for this, this verse is turning the corner. 
having defined the problem, now we're beginning to move towards the solution. As we were saved, that's how we're going to get sanctified. Now, for, as I said earlier, for so many of us, for so much of the church, our ability to explain salvation and how one gets saved is far easier than to explain to a person how to get sanctified, how we grow in Christ. So it's, it's imperative that we understand, if, if Paul is correct, that the same way we get saved is how we get sanctified, then we need clarity on how it is that we were saved. So l- let me take a little poll here. How many of you got saved by being such a righteous person, just by your good works? Ra- raise your hand. Good. No one raised their hands. How many of you got saved by osmosis? You just hung around other Christians, you hung around the church, and, and you just sort of got saved by hanging around Christians. No. How many of you got saved through heredity? You just were born into a Christian family, and you, know, you just got the, the saved genes. Okay, Here, here's the question that has to be answered. If we get sanctified, if we are changed, if we're transformed, if we deal with this common problem of sin in the same manner we were saved, then we have to answer the question of how did we get saved? And that brings us to this next verse. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Listen to what Paul says. For it is by grace that you've been saved... Through faith, this is not from yourselves. It's a gift from God. So what Paul says in Ephesians 2.8 is that we were saved by grace through faith. We are saved by grace through faith. Not as a result of our works, not through osmosis, not through having been born into the right family. We were saved by God's grace through faith. What does that mean? Well, grace is simply God doing for us, in us, to us, what we could never do for ourselves. Grace is is that undeserved divine favor towards us. Grace is what God does on our behalf that we couldn't do no matter how hard we try, how much work we put into it. Grace is this gift. It is this action from God. And what is faith? We're saved by grace, by God doing what we couldn't do. What is faith? Faith is simply leaning on God, believing in in mind and heart, in what God says, trusting in God. So we are saved by grace, God doing what we couldn't do, taken hold of by simply believing, by trusting, by relying on, by leaning on God. So we could say, again, we're trying to answer this question of how do we get transformed, how do we overcome in this life the issue of sin. Colossians uh, 6, 7, and 8 says we, over, we deal with sin the same way that we you know, got saved. And here in Galatians it says we're saved by what God did, not what we did. So we could say very accurately that salvation by definition, because it's by grace, not by works, nothing we do, Salvation, by definition, is supernatural. You with me? We were saved by something that God did. It's supernatural. It's not what we've done. It's not something that we can manipulate or maneuver. We were saved by something that God did on our behalf, not deserved, not earned, not something that we made happen. It is supernatural. It is God's work of grace in us, apprehended by faith, by believing, by leaning or trusting in what he did. 
back in 1971 is when I, I got saved. I was a, a student at Ashland, uh, was a, Ashland College back then, university now, sounds much better. But I was at Ashland College, and I had, I had grown up in New York City. I grew up in a, in a Jewish home. I had, it was a secular Jewish home. By the time I went to college, I, I was an atheist. I didn't believe in God at all. I didn't believe there was any, any, any truth in any belief in God. And I, I, was, I was, I think I've shared this before, I was an evangelistic atheist. You know, I loved talking about religion because I figured I had given it a shot in, in Judaism only to make no connection with God, so I figured I had the answers. And there I was at Ashland College. This was in 1971 during the Jesus Movement. And there was this guy, his name was Meredith. He didn't go to school at Ashland. He, was, he lived in town. He was my age. He's about 18 years old. And he was the quintessential Jesus freak. And, and Meredith would come to the, to the college every day and he'd sit around and he would just, you know, in what, what I call, he'd just proselytize. He would just make a pain in the neck of himself talking to people about Jesus. And it just got under my skin. And then one night, October 29th, about 10 o'clock in the evening, I come into my dormitory and there's Meredith talking to a friend of mine. And I, I just had it. I figured, okay, I'm going to go run interference. I'm going to, you know, help my friend out and, and deal with Meredith. So I, Meredith, you know, he was the campus Jesus freak. I was sort of the, the dormitory atheist. We got into it with each other. Big argument, big debate. Not particularly theological, but just, you know, he would say, Jesus is God. And I'd say, he is not. And he'd say, he is so. And I'd say, oh, yeah, and yeah. I mean, that's sort of the level of this, this debate. And at a certain point, I said, you know, Meredith, I would love for there to be a God, but there isn't any. You need to learn. You need to understand that there is no God. And he turned to me and he said, well, I'll tell you what, let's go outside, because by that time, there's a lot of people listening to us. He said, let's go outside, and I'll introduce you to God. And I think, I, I, you know, I'll need to see the video of that, that episode of my life when I get to heaven, but I think I was just figuring... I'll just put this to bed once and for all. You know, let's go outside, give me your best shot, and we'll be done with it, and you'll see there's no God. So he and I went outside. He said, okay, Danny, I'm going to pray your prayer. You repeat after me. Have at it. Go for it. So he prayed some simple prayers, sort of like, Jesus, if you're God, I want to know you, something like that. So I parroted the words, and now outwardly, if someone was watching, they would think, well, nothing happened. I didn't fall to the ground. I didn't shake. I didn't burst into tears. But something definitely, dramatically happened internally. It was as though a switch was flipped. And all of a sudden, I just knew that I knew that I knew that there really was a God. It, 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 was, it was like that scene in The Wizard of Oz where it goes from black and white to color. And it's the best way I could explain it. That I just knew in that moment that there was a God. And when you know it, his name is Jesus. I didn't know anything about him. But I knew that something happened. The, a switch was flipped inside of me. I can't explain it. Not every conversion experience has to be like that or is like that, but that's what occurred. That's what occurred. And, and for these next 45, whatever, however many years have passed, it's been this process of growing in a relationship that began in October of 1971. But it was supernatural. You understand? It was supernatural. And I want you to understand, regardless of how you came to Christ, whether you sort of oozed in because you grew up in a Christian home where it feels like you oozed in, or whether you were able to identify the moment you, you received Christ, I want you to know that it was supernatural for you just as, as much. That it was something that God did. That when your name was, was written in the book of life in heaven, it wasn't because of your good works. We know that. It was by grace, 
something that God did, it was supernatural, something he did that you benefited from. And it involved an exchange. It was supernatural, it was what God did, but it involved a change. There was something that happens on earth that has a heavenly effect. There's something that happens in heaven that has an earthly effect. That's what happened back in that October for me. God did something that affected me here on earth. And my faith, which was amazingly, he considered at least a mustard seed's worth. I don't understand how it even ranked that much. But the faith, even just to, to parrot those words, God said, I'll take it. And he did something on the inside that transformed my life from that, that evening on. It was supernatural and it was an exchange. And this is, this is the key concept of this, this verse. Supernatural exchange. Okay, you can put that up on the top. Ephesians 2, 8 speaks to a supernatural exchange. When I grew up in New York City, my grandfather, who, who was very relational and like my uh, nuclear family, my grandfather, every, every weekend he would take a train from his home on one side of the city to where we lived on the other side of New York. And he would come, he'd come by train. I remember even when I was a kid, he'd come, I'd go down to the train station, and when he'd get off the train, I'd run up and I'd greet him. And, and as a little kid, he would always reach in his pocket and he'd pull out a, maybe it was a, a you know, candy bars, you know, a pack of gum, you know, sometimes he, a, a silver dollar. And I'd look at it, he'd say, you, you want it? And I'd go, yeah. And he'd say, well, what, what do you want to give me for it? What do you have for an, an exchange? And I'd reach into my pocket, you know, I'd pull out a piece of paper, I, you know, a crust of bread from lunch, I'd pull out, you know, some pocket lint, and I'd, I'd hold it out. And he, he would look down at that, that piece of lint and he'd say, oh, that's a mighty fine looking piece of lint you got there. You want to exchange? I'd say, yeah. And I'd give him the lint, the paper, the sand, the crust of bread, whatever it was, and he'd give me whatever he had for me. And this went on week after week, year after year, so much so that I began to feel guilty as I got older, thinking, the poor old man doesn't realize I'm always getting the better part of this deal. But years later, the Lord said to me, he said, you know, I was thinking about that, and the Lord said, that's how I want you to relate to me. I want you to take those things in your life that have no value, that are worthless, that you don't want, you don't need, and I want you to give it to me, and in exchange, I want you to receive what only I can give that has great value. Folks, that is the normal Christian life. That's how we got saved, by God doing something that we couldn't do for ourselves. It was a supernatural exchange between heaven and earth. That's how we get sanctified. That's how we deal with our sins. That's how we deal with sins committed against us. We take these, these things, these incidents, these memories, these parts of our life, patterns in our life, whether it's our sin or a sin committed against us, and we bring it to the Lord and we say, Lord, I see the bad fruit. And we give it to him. And in exchange, he breaks the power of those things. And next week, we're going to be talking very explicitly, very practically on exactly how that works, how that looks, and how we enter into it. But suffice it to say, it's a supernatural exchange. How we got saved, it's a supernatural exchange. How we get sanctified. Sanctification is the result of our will, our desire, our wanting it, and His power. Someone once said responsibility is simply our response to his ability. Our saying, Jesus, I don't want this, this addiction in my life. Jesus, I don't want to continue to trip over this carpet and, and react and have these emotional reflexes taking hold of my life. But I can't do anything about it on my own. But I give it to you. Won't you come and supernaturally 
deal with it. We'll be putting, putting wheels on that next week. It's sort of like Peter walking on the water. You know, Peter is sitting there in the boat. He sees Jesus standing on the water, walking towards him and the other disciples. And Peter says, can I come to you? And Jesus said, yeah. And then what did Jesus do? He levitated Peter up and over the side of the boat, right? Now, what Peter had to do is put his foot over the side of that boat, lower himself down, not because he thought I have any power. Peter hadn't been practicing water walking, but he trusted, he put faith in God's power. He stepped over the side of the boat and probably to his great surprise, when his foot hit the water and he began to put weight on it, he didn't sink. And he put the other foot down and he didn't sink. And he took a step and he didn't sink. It was God's grace taken hold of by his faith. That's the normal Christian life. And let me just say this before we, we do some ministry. Most of the time, most of us try to walk with God by our strength, tiptoeing on the water. I think I could do it this time. Rather than saying, I cannot change my life. Not permanently, certainly. Not in any way that really gets to the root of things. I can't fix myself. I can't deal with this common problem of, of sin, my sins, and sins committed against us, and just the brokenness in this world, and deal with death, and deal with loss. That's no human being's fault other than Adam and Eve, perhaps, but I cannot deal with, my, with, with this issue of sin apart from you. But Lord, I want to make this exchange. I'm desperate. I'm tired of tripping over the carpet. And I give you permission, Jesus, to begin to pull back the carpet and begin to clean out what I've swept underneath, either because I didn't even recognize it was sin or because I didn't know how to deal with it. I want to begin to deal with it today. You with me? Next, the next two weeks is when we get to the nitty-gritty. The next two weeks, we're going to become extremely practical and down-to-earth so that you become really good at knowing how to make those supernatural exchanges. It's a skill that you can learn. It's a skill that we're going to talk about and teach next week. So that having abandoned the, the spring of life and having turned and begun to dig empty wells, not only are we going to be able to identify our empty wells and lay the shovel down and abandon those empty wells, we are going to talk practically on how do we reestablish a connection with Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't know him, but how are we going to connect with Christ in such a way that we can experience his provision through his power to separate us from the, the bad fruit that Paul says sin always results in. See, we have no problem saying salvation was supernatural. You know, we are, we are made new in Christ. We know that it's supernatural. We just need to learn how do we cooperate with this process of transformation so that our walk with Jesus day by day can also appropriate this same supernatural power. Because what does Galatians 6, 7, and 8 say? As we received Christ, so walk with him. As you got saved, that's how you get sanctified. And how did we get saved? Galatians, well, Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, how we got saved is by grace through faith. Colossians says, we receive, as we received him, so walk with him. Why don't you stand up? <clears throat> don't miss next week or the week after. Here, here's what I, I really believe the Lord wants us to do today. 
you know, as we were talking about this whole issue of, of bends in the fishing pole and, and, and things that get swept under the carpet and, and the bumps in the carpet and our emotional reflexes, without a doubt, I hope many of us begin to think of aspects of our life that are described by those images. Probably the most, the boldest thing we can do with the Lord at any time is simply say, Jesus, come and have your way with me and mean it. I mean, that, that takes real nerve. It doesn't take much nerve to come to the front. It takes a whole lot of nerve to say, Jesus, this week, I'm asking that you begin to pull back the carpet. This week, I'm giving you permission to show me the areas that I continually stumble over so that I become desperate for you to change me and transform me. And that's what I'm going to ask that the Lord does today. And those of you who are willing to to boldly pray that prayer with me, we're not going to even invite anybody to the front. We're going to do something far more scary. We're going to just invite, I'm going to invite you to say, Jesus, this week, pull the carpet back. This week, show me those areas that are, are not in control. Show me this week how I've been trying by my own strength to deal with something that, that only you're going to be able to deal with and make me desperate. And then these next few couple of weeks, we're going to put the wheels on it so that you have the skills and, the, and have learned how to make those supernatural exchanges. Okay? You with me? Why don't we just bow our heads? Father, we come before you right now. And in Jesus' name, we, we just... We surrender. We, we say uncle. We, we've tried to fix ourselves. We, we've tried to avoid looking at areas of our life, whether it's our own brokenness or wounds and hurts from our childhood and our past. But Jesus today we say, come and have your way in my life. Jesus, I pray this week, Lord, bring, begin to pull the carpet back and show us what is affecting our lives, what's in control of our lives. Jesus, this week, let our eyes be opened to those empty wells, those counterfeit ways that we're trying to compensate for our brokenness. Ways that we're trying to find identity or peace, security, safety. Lord, Put it before us, right in front of us, so that we can be a people who learn to, to turn around and receive your grace. That we can place faith and trust in what only you can do for us. Lord, make us a desperate people a desperate people and if that's your prayer just say amen amen we're going to do one final song here and I, I just I just pray present yourself to Jesus not to the concept of Jesus not to the notion of God present yourself this week and each day to a living God who is active and is looking 
to allow his fingerprints to be all over our lives. Okay? Let's worship. Father, come this week. Have your way with us. Lord, be, be tapping us on our shoulder throughout the week. Just showing us those, those futile ways that we try to get only what you can give. Showing us those areas that, that need to be presented so you can transform us. You can change us. Come, Lord. Open our eyes to the reality of, of your life with us day by day. We want to walk in a life of, of continual supernatural exchanges, Lord, as we receive Christ. That's how we want to walk with you. So come. In Jesus' name, amen. So folks, if you didn't get a card, grab one or two of these cards. Begin to, again, familiarize yourself with the verses and with, each, with, with the key concept so that you can communicate to somebody else how they are transformed, okay? We'll see you next week. Don't forget these next two weeks. They're going to uh, really help out. God bless you all.